0: This is a Vantage House production.
1: Hi, folks, welcome back. This is Madison, still filling in for Trayland. And if it's Friday, then this is The Delve. up, this episode covers topics like weight management, body image, disordered eating, and more. Please take care. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a lot of celebrities slimming down lately. They don't seem to be slimming down for a role, but rather just to look, quote, good. And good in a fatphobic society means thin. Now we've lived in a fatphobic society for many years. Could it possibly be more fatphobic now than 20 years ago? Certainly, there's more body acceptance of, quote, mid-size and plus-size women now. This is thanks to fat women who have blazed the bodily acceptance trail, women who have refused to shed pounds or shy away from the public eye like Nicole Byer, activists like Aubrey Gordon, the body-shamed pop martyrs like Jessica Simpson and Kelly Clarkson, and to fat women carving out space for themselves on social media like Remy Bader or the big stage like Lizzo. So in a media environment that isn't the worst it's ever been, why are some of these celebrities slimming down now? Is it magic? People with type 2 diabetes are excited about the potential of once-weekly Ozempic. In a study with Ozempic, a majority of adults lowered their blood sugar and reached an A1c of less than 7. In the same one-year study, adults lost on average up to 12 pounds. Ozempic should not be the first medicine for treating diabetes or for people with type 1 diabetes or diabetes. Stop taking Ozempic and get medical help right away if you get a lump or swelling in your neck, severe stomach pain, itching, rash, or trouble breathing. Common side effects are nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, stomach pain, and constipation. Patient. Some side effects can lead to dehydration, which may worsen kidney problems.
2: I discovered the potential with Ozempic. May
1: pay as little as $25 per prescription. Ask your healthcare provider today about once-weekly Ozempic. Rumor has it that Ozempic is sweeping Hollywood. It's being called a miracle drug. But let's take a moment to consider the side effects. In an article in The Guardian titled, I Miss Eating, A woman named Trish describes fatigue, dizziness, and elevated heart rate and says her brain is running really, really slowly these days, which makes phone calls and Zooms a little challenging, end quote. She's down a reported 47 pounds. From an Atlantic article titled, The Weight Loss Drug Revolution is a Miracle and a Menace, patients on semaglutide, Ozempic's key ingredient, and similar drugs have reported nausea and vomiting. These drugs can also produce gallstones, which are common among patients undergoing rapid weight loss. Some people using Ozempic report accelerated facial aging, aka Ozempic face, when they lose fat in their cheeks. But author Derek Thompson continues to say, nevertheless, as a medical achievement, these drugs are stupendous inventions. Nausea, vomiting, fatigue, dizziness, gallstones, increased risk of thyroid cancer, aging face. What is a miracle about this? The fact that it can make you thin? Are we happy to have thyroid cancer just because we're thin? Is that a miracle? Ozempic works through its key ingredient, semaglutide, by causing the pancreas to secrete more insulin and decrease the amount of glucogen produced by the liver. Together, this suppresses the appetite and makes you feel full for longer. Ozempic and other brands of semaglutide are prescribed for type two diabetics. Now, I'm not here to shame type 2 diabetics or pre-diabetics who are using this drug under the guidance of medical professionals. For some, this drug could truly be a medical breakthrough. And this may be the first chance to take something that really works. But it's still new and not necessarily for everyone. Here's TikTok star Remy Bader describing her experience.
0: I get triggered by so many things with weight because I am also sensitive to it in a way that I'm like almost annoyed that it's this trendy thing now. When I went on it for like Why were you offered it to go on? Pre diabetic, insulin resistance, gaining 50 to 80 pounds, like real, you know, reasons that like. You know, I wasn't judging real reasons. Right. And I think that's what people are mistaking right now with a lot of people that are talking about it.
1: Like you were offered it
0: not for vanity you were offered it because your doctor thought yeah and also it was brand new and I just like was like they said I need this once I was you know if you once later got into the bad binging and went off it and I saw a doctor and they were like it's 100% because you went on Ozempic because it was making me think I wasn't hungry for so long I lost some weight I didn't want to be like obsessed with being on it long term and I was like, I bet the second I go off I'm going to get starving again. I did and my binging got so much worse. So then I kind of blamed Ozempic. Mm, so first. it doesn't work when you get off of it. Like yeah. you have to be on it. So it's not- I gained double the weight back after.
1: Okay, so it's not a cut and dry miracle drug. But it helps people lose weight. And boy do we put a lot of pressure on people to constantly lose weight. And it's dangerous to be using off-label injectable pharmaceuticals. But it's not the only extreme weight loss trend that we and celebrities have jumped on. At the end of the day, people are just doing their best in a patriarchal fat-phobic society. Here's an important quote from The Cut. Celebrities don't owe us information about their health or what medications they take, nor should they have to defend their bodies, diets, or exercise habits. For more than a decade, both Real Housewives of Beverly Hills star Kylie Richards and Khloe Kardashian have been judged, criticized, and even bullied for their looks. The practice of closely monitoring famous people's bodies, especially women's, just further exposes how obsessed we still are with weight loss and how deeply ingrained fat phobia is. But continuing to treat weight loss as a prize will always be a trap. We need to hold ourselves accountable for the media we create and consume. We all, at some point or another, have upheld fat phobia. We have held unrealistic expectations of people, especially of women, to look a certain way to fit into certain clothes, to be objects of our desire for our consumption. And for us to consume their bodies in a way that is palatable to us, we often force them not to consume anything, to shrink themselves, to exercise until they all but disappear, to inject themselves with diabetes medication. It's dark, it's scary, it's disappointing. But in researching this show, I was really wrestling with my relationship to celebrity and celebrity bodies. So I wanted to speak with someone who's an expert on how we consider and relate to fatness as a society, and on body image, pop culture, diet trends, and more. I spoke with professor and author Harriet Brown, who helped me organize my own thoughts and feelings about this topic, and better still, bust some fatphobic myths. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hi, Harriet. Thank you so much for joining us on The Delve. I'm very excited to be talking with you today. How are you? I am well, and thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. So we wanted to chat with you because of your extensive body of work about weight and diet culture. Would you please introduce yourself and and maybe some of the bigger works that you have participated in and books you've written?
2: Sure. I'm Harriet Brown. I have written a lot on subjects relating to body image and weight, including a book called Body of Truth that came out a few years ago, and also a book about anorexia, sort of a different take on the issue, called Brave Girl Eating. Uh, I've written a lot for the New York Times and Slate and places like that about lots of issues connected to this. It's, It's something that's Near and dear to my heart as a journalist and also as a woman and also as a mother of two daughters. So it's something that I've experienced personally from a lot of different perspectives and have also spent a number of years delving into the research on weight and health and so many of the messages that we are constantly indoctrinated with that turn out to be maybe not so true.
1: And so in that, Body of work, then, sort of as you're alluding to, we do a lot to manage our bodies or lose weight. And of course, through human history, we've been using drugs to do that for a long time in many different ways. What would you say is sort of the social and popular context for this latest Ozempic craze? Why is this taking off and why now? Oh boy, (laughs) we could talk about this
2: for (laughs) a year. You know, the, the sort of short, cynical answer is that big pharma and and just to be clear like i have no major problems with the pharmaceutical industry we rely on them for life-saving treatments you know that there's a lot of good that comes out of that kind of research but the bottom line with weight is that there is a huge amount of money to be made in as you say managing our bodies and specifically around weight loss we have this drumbeat of distress in our culture for the last 20, 30 years about, oh my God, we're all too fat, you know, obesity, which is a word I don't actually like, but we can talk about that later. It's an epidemic, it's on the rise. We have to do something about this. And, you know, big pharma is doing what it does best, which is look for pharmaceutical treatments for this. And I think back in 2013, I think it was when the American Medical Association decreed that obesity was in fact a disease. Since then, big pharma has been looking for treatments. And so lots of the drugs that have been on the market have been deeply problematic for one reason or another. I'm thinking back to like 2007 when there was a drug that was marketed under the brand name Ali, and it basically wasn't much better than placebo. Plus, it involved a lot of really unpleasant GI symptoms for people. So this new generation, like um, Ozempic and Wegovy, those are like brand names for semaglutide, is exciting to big pharma because it doesn't have quite as many of those side effects. And people do lose weight when they're taking it. So it is significantly better than placebo. Plus, the other thing about it is, like all drugs like this, when you stop taking it, you gain the weight back. So Mm. it's kind of got a built-in forever kind of situation. So once you get a customer who's happy with it, you're going to have that customer forever. And especially if insurance will cover that, which is very unclear at this point whether insurance would pay. In fact, I've heard a lot of anecdotal stories about people losing weight on the drug, no longer being classified as obese and being cut off. So. So that's the kind of, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of money to be made. And to be clear, it's not just big pharma, right? There's bariatric surgery, for example, is one of the most lucrative specialties you can go into in the medical field. And so many doctors who are bariatric doctors, you know, who sort of specialize in the treatment of weight-related issues also own standalone bariatric surgery centers, for example, you know? So there's There's an awful lot of double and triple dipping that happens in this field, uh, which is, of course, problematic too. But one of the interesting things about this, quote, new class of drugs too, is that they're not actually weight loss drugs. They are drugs for type 2 diabetes. I think their main mechanism is that they lower A1C and blood sugar levels. And so the sort of on-label prescriptions of them are for people with type 2 diabetes who are having a hard time managing their blood sugar. So actually, interestingly, one of the side effects of this new craze is that people who have been prescribed the drug for diabetes can't get it because Mm -hmm. there are shortages. So it's a big Mm -hmm. complicated situation.
1: So we went over the incentives from the pharmaceutical companies and sort of where doctors fit in here. But I really wanted to talk about celebrities and the influence they're having On this craze, I'm kind of like going back and forth, right? In one instance, it's oftentimes a celebrity's job to grow or shrink themselves for a role, right? Mm -hmm, They have mm -hmm. to lose weight. That's their job. Or they have to gain weight. That's their job. And this is an injectable fad diet, essentially, right? I mean, otherwise they were going to be drinking celery juice or whatever it is, (laughs) you know, to like suddenly shrink themselves. Um, But what do you think? the impact of celebrity is on the public and what are their responsibilities to us? What do you think?
2: I mean, it's very obvious that celebrities are going to have a big impact, right? Like that is also their job, right? Your job as a celebrity in 2023 is to be an influencer of some kind. It's not enough anymore to be an amazing actor or, you know, musician Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Interacting with your public is also part of it and influencing them because, again, there's not to be cynical, but there's money to be made from those kinds of collabs, as they say, right? Collaborations. Mm. But I also have a lot of empathy for celebrities, especially for women celebrities, because mm-hmm. you know, because you're a woman, like you grow up a woman in this culture and there's an enormous amount of pressure on you. To make your body conform to exactly what it's supposed to look like, which, you know, whiteness, although if you're white, then having like a tan, you know, is also mm-hmm, considered right. you know, thinness, but maybe like fat in all the right places. There's a whole mess of things that we are, you know, hairlessness, whole lots of things that we are supposed to do to our bodies to make them be acceptable, really. I can't really imagine never having been a celebrity, what it's like to be like a Mindy Kaling or an Adele or a Melissa McCarthy or whoever, and to have that kind of pressure amplified by, you know exponentially. So mm-hmm. I can understand the temptation to manipulate your body in any way possible, right? And I think like I get it. And I also don't know that cel- I don't know that celebrities owe us anything. Right, Mm. they're they're just human beings doing their thing. But having Mm -hmm. said that, I do think it's really disturbing that reportedly stars like Mindy Kaling are having Ozempic parties. You know, where Mm -hmm. people get together and inject themselves for weight loss. First of all, one injection isn't going to change your life. This is a drug you have to keep taking and keep taking. But obviously, it creates a sort of giddiness, and it also obfuscates. Any of the deeper questions about the drug itself. You know, like for example, these drugs are new. We don't have any long term data on them. Mm. They are inherently experimental, right? At this point, we just don't know what the effects are going to be long term. So that's problematic right there. And obviously, treating it like a party drug is problematic too. So, boy, is this a complicated issue.
1: Yeah. And you don't want to harp on them. Right in a negative sense, obviously they're getting a lot of positive reinforcement when they lose weight, celebrities, yeah, especially the women, right? But then it's also like you don't want to harp on it on that side or on the other side because we just don't need to make people's lives worse. You know, we just don't need to be shaming people about their bodies all the time. No. But it is tough to see kind of your quote unquote mid-size or plus size heroes suddenly shrinking themselves and saying, you know, that that wasn't enough um, or that wasn't good enough, you know, that like, that's tough. That's tough as a woman to watch.
2: Yeah. That makes you feel, that makes you feel shitty.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It does. About yourself because I mean,
2: (laughs) if you're not a celebrity, you don't have access to all of the supports and whatever. You don't belong to a fancy gym. You probably can't afford the kind of concierge chef services, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So if it's not okay for them, then it's really not okay for us. So right? yeah, Yeah. I agree. That does not feel good. And I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that's why so many people wind up feeling personally betrayed when someone like Rebel Wilson, you know, loses a lot of weight or something. And I get that. And I feel that too. But you know, then I also think, I don't know what it's like to be Rebel Wilson. You mm-hmm. know? Know yeah. It's like to live in her body. And so how can I judge her really? But yeah, it is mm-hmm. really disappointing.
1: Right. Yeah, because ultimately their bodies are their business. But it's still like you saw yourself in someone and then that person said to you, not in words, but in their journey that I wasn't good enough where I was. And so yeah. if you saw yourself in me there, then you and yourself are not good enough. And yeah, so that's yeah. tough. So... Let's talk then a little bit more about what is dangerous about this Ozempic craze. What do you see as sort of the top dangers of this latest craze? What a good question.
2: So before I say anything, I do want to say that I do support body autonomy for everyone, right? So Mm. like whoever you are, whatever your life is, whatever choices you make, I think we each are doing the best we can and making the choices that feel the best to us. And I support that, right? So that's on a sort of Mm -hmm. personal level. On a bigger picture level, I do think that one of the big problems with this craze is that, so I don't know if you're aware that quite recently the American Academy of Pediatrics released new guidelines, I'm putting them in scare quotes, about treating kids treating fat kids basically.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. And they, wow, did they go to town and they sort of opened the door. I mean, their previous guidelines had said things like kids shouldn't be dieting, you know, there should be other other ways of sort of assessing and managing health in kids, but this set of guidelines just throws all that out the window and basically says you can start intervening with kids around their weight from the time they're 2 years old. And it wow.
1: okays,
2: yes, and it okay's wow. the prescribing of drugs for obesity, like from the time they're twelve, or maybe younger. I don't have the guidelines in front of me. Mm. And it also okay's the possibility of bariatric surgery from the time they're thirteen. Hmm. So wow. I do think that one of the big problems, one of the big dangers of this, is that there's a whole lot of kids who are going to wind up on these medications. And again, we don't know what the long-term effects are. We do know that when you interfere with the body's natural growth curve and metabolism, that there are often downstream effects like for the rest of someone's life that are can be very problematic. And also, mm. we always talk about this as a physical thing, but we rarely talk about the sort of mental and emotional aspect of this. And in my work, in my writing, and also I am a professor at Syracuse University, and I teach a class about fatness, basically, and mo- many of my students are young women. and the stories that I hear about that kind of mental and emotional distress, of being mm-hmm. told all the time you're a kid that you know your body is not acceptable, that you're not acceptable, that you're not lovable, that you're not going to be oh lovable, that your life is going to be destroyed unless you change this fundamental thing about your body, and I think that unless you've experienced that or heard people's lived experiences around that, you cannot overestimate the level of pain and suffering and poor health that comes from that kind of stigmatizing.
1: Mm-hmm. Right
2: so I'm afraid that this is going to just pile on to that. And also, here's here's another thing. All of these diagnoses, right? How do you get diagnosed with obesity? It's all in what your BMI is. And right. BMI is obviously just a ratio between height and weight. It's a notoriously terrible measure of mm-hmm. health. It was never created to measure health and it doesn't measure health, right? It just looks mm-hmm. at that ratio, it doesn't take into account your level of fitness, your level of fatness, your, you know, like, like fat percentage versus muscle. It just, it's, it's a terrible, terrible measure. But that's the measure that we're using, you know, to Mm -hmm. diagnose people with this lifelong medical condition, and then to justify treating them for this lifelong medical condition. That's not a benign thing in and of itself that has really terrible consequences. And it's just poor medicine. You know what? This is lazy medicine. This is the medical profession looking at numbers, something that's easy, and saying, making a diagnosis and, oh, look, here's an easy thing. We could just put you on this drug. Instead of treating people as individuals, really assessing their level of health and really thinking about what are some of the ways that we can improve people's health, truly improve people's health, not just make the numbers on the scale go
1: down. Mm -hmm. That was more of a rant than
2: you asked for.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's great. I mean, yeah, I think it is is important to remember that the prescriptions for Ozempic and before it became sort of a fad was really in managing diabetes. And it might be a health benefit to those people that it makes sense for. And yeah, we don't have the data long term, but it might be a health benefit for Mm them long term. Mm -hmm. That's definitely possible. So when we're talking about danger, you know, we're talking about unknown science. But then also, I mean, people are buying this thing off the internet. They're getting injected at parties, presumably. You know, this is under the table, under the radar. That's scary. I mean, anytime you're just injecting yourself with something right? That should be taken very seriously, I think. So yeah. And then if you think about young people, if you say you're going to have to be on this forever, right? And that's a commitment you're ready to make at 12, 13 years old. I mean, there's absolutely no way. And how much of your body image is being shaped in those you know, crucial years of being a teenager? You could really imagine that mental impact. So on that subject, And based on your work, you wrote a book about anorexia. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I was wondering what you thought about how this might affect disordered eating or affect the people that are battling with disordered eating. Yes. Well, so I
2: I don't think this kind of thing causes eating disorders, but... I think because I, what I know about anorexia and other eating disorders is that there's neurobiology involved. You know, you are very likely, almost certainly born with a genetic predisposition to developing like a true eating disorder. And then you might get triggered by the environment. Um, wow.
1: Okay. Like, I did not like, know that.
2: Yes. Clinical eating disorders, like a clinical uh. diagnosis of anorexia or bulimia or whatever.
1: But uh-huh. that
2: said, that's different from disordered eating patterns which I think are <laughs> are definitely affect a lot more people and mm. are widespread and somewhat contagious and are definitely triggered by environment. So, you know, we live in an incredibly fat phobic culture and an incredibly fat phobic world. And, you know, again, like when I teach this class, I would say probably most of my students, you would look at them and say they're definitely not fat. You know, some of them are quite thin, um, but they all feel this pressure and they all feel this fear. Like if you're not fat and you're a woman in this culture, you're afraid you might become fat because if Mm -hmm. you do, you're unacceptable. And if you are fat, then you are told by so many people in so many ways that your number one job is to change that. And of Mm -hmm. course, it's almost impossible to change body weight long term in a major way. So, and and the people who do do that often are deeply engaged in disordered practices. So, yeah, so what does that tell people, right? What does it tell you? And but basically, I think everyone winds up feeling like my body's not good enough. I have to change something major about my body or I have to protect what is good about my body, but in one way you could look at this as result of living in a capitalist neoliberal society, right? Where our number one job is to optimize ourselves, you know, for the good of the state, basically, like Mm -hmm. we have to be productive, Mm -hmm. we have to be attractive, we have to be right for that productivity. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So like, why can we not just be who we are? (laughs) Right? Why does a woman Mm -hmm. have to be, you know, my grandmother um, used to have this phrase that she would use when she talked about women who did not, you know, whose bodies did not conform, she would say, oh, she's let herself go. Mm, Yes. (laughs) Always said in a voice dripping with judgment, you know? And it was like, and I, even as a kid, I wanted to say like, what does that mean? And why can't I just let myself, like, why can
1: I not just (laughs) be who I am, you know? Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's really... That's really interesting. I, yeah, absolutely. Disordered eating is so broad, I think. And and that disconnect between self and perception of self is so common. I think it's, you know, you always hear about, and I'm so guilty of this as well. You look at a picture of yourself from high school or whatever, and you say, oh my God, I used to think I was so fat. And mm-hmm. look how thin I was, mm-hmm. you know? And there's that constant yeah disconnect between self and perception of self and and that void of of self love even for the best that. of us i mean yeah, yeah. what does that come yeah. from right
2: it comes from so when you were in high school and you felt fat quote unquote and i mm. i had the same experience right what does that really mean i think it means that what you felt was not as attractive as you could or should be you were anxious about whether you were lovable and whether you would find a partner and like all of those, it really reflects, like we use the word fat, to stand in for so many other
1: things, mm-hmm.
2: right? right. That go way beyond like fatness on your body or whatever, like a descriptive, you know, way to describe your physical self. It means so many other things to us. And I think when we say, I feel fat, we're almost always really saying, I feel insecure. I feel anxious about mm-hmm. myself. I feel ugly. I feel whatever, fill in the blank. And that's the thing we should be paying attention to, really. But it gets up right. with this conversation and all of this sort of drum beating around fatness and weight.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well then, I just kind of wanted to give you a chance, if you would like to take it, to just bust your top or your, I guess, your worst phobic myths. Which ones do you really want to bust? <laughs>
2: Okay, let's see. Um, I would say number one is that uh, all fat people have poor nutrition and are lazy. You know, there's this sort of myth that if you're fat, it's because you're not self disciplined. You're not working out. You're not paying a lot of attention to your nutrition. And it also kind of goes beyond that, that it says something essential about your character. You're undisciplined. Mm -hmm. You're lazy. You don't care about yourself. You're stupid right? We have all of these associations. And these are assumptions that we learn at a very young age and we internalize. I mean, I also have internalized them. I live in this culture too. So even studying this and spending a lot of time on this subject for the last 20 years, I still have some of those knee-jerk reactions when I look at myself or someone else. And I have to then kind of go the next step and remind myself that these are knee-jerk associations and they're not true. So for example. We think we can tell some something about someone's health by looking at them. so if you're fat, you're in poor health, which first of all, health is a very complex measure and a somewhat individual measure, but you have no idea from looking at someone what their blood pressure is, what their blood sugar is, what their you know level of fitness is, like you just mm-hmm. know. So I think it would be great if we could bust that myth. And, and by the same token, you don't know, looking at someone thin, you also mm-hmm. don't know those things. And we often assume that if you're thin, your health is great. Well, that's very right. often not the case. So that would be number one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You want to bust another one? Yeah, sure.
2: Number two is that your body weight is in your control. And I think it's very easy for people to sort of go up and down within their sort of set point range. So five or 10 pounds, 15 pounds, like it's not that hard for us to lose and gain and whatever, but bodies do have set points. So Mm. to truly change your set point, let's say to go from 300 pounds to 150 pounds, perhaps it's possible. It's possible short term, but to, to really change, make that kind of change forever is not fully within your control. And the thing you hear a lot is calories in, calories out. You, know, you just have to eat a calorie deficit to lose weight. But that truism ignores all the complexities of metabolism. So for example, uh, every time you diet and lose weight and then eventually gain it back because 95% of people do gain it back and gain more back, that's because you have reset your metabolism. All of a sudden your body's not getting as many calories and it goes into starvation mode and you know you lose weight. And then eventually your body is like, hmm, this is I gotta figure out another way to sort of work with this. So our bodies are incredible. They become more efficient at using calories, right? So in other words, if you are an adult in this culture who's fat, you've probably dieted three, four, five more times which Mm -hmm. means that you have damaged your metabolism all those times, which is why it's perfectly possible for someone who's fat to say, but I only eat 1,200 calories a day and I'm still gaining Mm -hmm. weight. Yeah, that can be true. So this idea that our body weight is infinitely malleable and that it's a function of self-discipline is simply not true. You can improve your health in lots of ways, like you can start exercising, you can find ways to move your body that are joyful and that feel good and that are going to, you know, make you healthier and make your body stronger, but weight loss doesn't always go along with that. So I think that's the biggest thing. And I think that's why fat phobia is in some ways still more acceptable than some other kinds of stigma, like not to engage in the stigma Olympics, but a lot of other conditions are seen as no fault, the color of the skin you were born with, or like a physical deformity or, you know, whatever, but you can help your weight. So... Right. You could have done something about
1: this. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for busting those myths. Um, I'm glad we got a chance to do that. Yeah. Um, I felt like that was a really important thing I wanted to bring to this conversation. Um, So let's wrap up we love to ask people that come on the show what makes them hopeful is there a glimmer of hope here to just send us out on a on a positive note i do think there's hope
2: you know when i was a kid and a teenager in the long, long ago 1970s i mean no one talked about this stuff in any way that could be critical i mean it did not occur to me till i was like in my 30s to even question the paradigm that like maybe thinness isn't what I should be devoting 95% of my attention and energy toward. And it never Mm. occurred to me that I could live any kind of happy life if I wasn't super thin. Like everything I did was all organized toward when I'm thin, when I'm thin. So I think Mm. what's hopeful is that we are having a very different kind of conversation now, right? We're, We're still, there's still all that pressure and there's still all of that you know, and in some ways it's changed because it's become such a, you know, you're going to hear it so much from medical professionals, but there are also other voices being heard, you know, and I I think Mm -hmm. it's so great, for example, that you're doing this program and investigating this because you can find those other voices and you can find support for loving yourself as you are, or even, you know, frankly, I don't really care about loving myself. I don't even know what that means. I just... Mm -hmm. Don't want to be obsessed by it. I don't want to think about it. Mm, Better things to think about. And you can definitely find information and support for those ways of living. So I think that's great. You know, like social media is a double edged sword. It can all like it can amplify the pressure that's on us, but it also exposes us to other voices. So I say rah rah for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And in social media, you have the opportunity to curate your own feed. You know, I think so many times we say like, oh, we live in an echo chamber. We live in an echo chamber. Okay, yeah, for sure. That can be negative, right? But that can also mean that I am watching and you know consuming content of things that make me feel better about myself, right? Rather than not good about myself. You know, I can say to Instagram, I don't want to see this kind of content. This makes me feel bad about myself, you know? So- yeah, it can be a, a negative of course, but it can also be a positive and and just that we have that control over what we are seeing and consuming and yeah, and having reflected back to us. So, yeah. Cool. All right. Um, well let me just give you a chance to plug your books or any other place you would like to be found on this great wide internet or um in bookstores. Sure. Um
2: Well, you can find me and my work at uh, harrietbrown.com. My most recent book actually is not about weight and body image. Uh, It's about family estrangement, a whole other can of worms, and that's called Shadow Daughter. But uh, my other books are Body of Truth and Brave Girl Eating and a few before that. And yeah, I love to hear from readers too. So I love to interact with them.
1: Cool. All right. Thank you so much, Harriet. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. For The Delve, this is Madison. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next week.